Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello, and welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your etiquette questions on using knives as pushers, dealing with questions about homeschooling, which job is it that I'm being interviewed for, how to handle having no wedding reply card, and a ski weekend that ended in woe. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on serving wine. Coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is so very proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post Senning. Yes, you are. <laughs> you can call me Mr. Moderator. <laughs> Dan, you broke into your local scene. So town meeting day is a thing in Vermont. And, and we've is, talked about it on have, this show. We have. And we are really proud of town meeting day. I lament the fact that my city has like ward voting and not town meetings, but that's okay. I can, I can learn more and get more involved at some point. But you actually are now a real part of town meeting day, so much so that if you caught the local paper correct, there's a big old picture of my cousin on it. <laughs> Although the headline reads, End of an Era. <laughs> which is really the, the appropriate story in the small town of Duxbury, Vermont. Tell where us about it. The Morse family, the Morse family is a an entrenched family in central Vermont. There had been a Morse moderating the Duxbury town meeting for the last 80 years. So in the, the 200 plus year tradition of the town meeting of the town of Duxbury... <laughs> figure a full third of that had been under the stewardship of the Morse family. And last year, the moderator had announced his intention to resign the position. And yours truly took the plunge, decided to enter <laughs> local politics. And um, I uh, said yes when a neighbor asked if they could nominate me, put me up for moderator. And I'm just absolutely delighted that the town gave me a vote of confidence and... I made it through a, a crash course in Robert's Rules of Orders and um, am very much looking forward to doing, I hope, if they have me back, a better job next year. But it was... Wait, but hold on. You literally got voted in and then, like, put in the hot seat? You didn't get time to, like, study or something like that? Like, how did it work? I, I'd spent a couple nights um, <laughs> sort of with a uh, both a cheat sheet and a, a little thin book that described Robert's Rules, but... You know, I have some familiarity. I've been to a lot of town meetings, yeah. but it's different when you're standing up in front of people and you're trying to remember the orders and procedures. And there's definitely it feels sort of etiquette in some ways. Right. It's funny. You're trying to, to almost like predict the energy and movement of the room so that you can actually time things out right, give appropriate voice to people and there's quite a lot, both in terms of just a, like, hosting sense, like you're hosting the meeting in a lot of ways. You can't then take any kind of real opinion or control because you have to be fair and, and unbiased in any of your selection of who is allowed to speak when. 
And then on top of it, there's actually just like straight up points of order that need to be followed that when you've never been in the position to direct that, you're going to need some help. And I thought it sounded to me like the community that had been there and responsible for this was actually really amazing at helping you make your first run of this smooth and workable. Absolutely no question. Totally. First of all, a big thank you to Mark Morse, who had been our moderator for almost 20 years, yeah. who was there, who both gave me some guidance ahead of time and was present when questions did come up. Points of order. <laughs> they call it point of order, Mr. Moderator. <laughs> point of order, Mr. Moderator. <laughs> um, all of these things that sound familiar. Um, I'd like to make a motion. Yeah. I, uh, the eyes appear to have it. The eyes do have it. All of these things that we're used to hearing. But yeah. boy, when you're standing there facilitating the meeting keeping that language in the front of your mind and also, like you say, being fair. Because really you're just a facilitator. Yes. You are playing host. And one of the things I really like about the position, and you know this about me, is that in some ways it's, it forces neutrality. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden I'm I'm sort of required. Many it's not required, but it's my job to not participate in the most heated <laughs> debates in town. Which is a, a really nice position for me. You like not being com- having to deal with confrontation and like making a stand. You like that? You like the neutrality because? I liked refereeing <laughs> youth hockey yes, when I was did. in high school. I like that position of sort of neutral arbiter, but also facilitator for a good experience. <laughs> I love it because it sounds like you had a great time. It sounds like you are fit really well for this position. And I think it's really great when you have... Spent 10 years away to return to your community as an adult. Um, You're representing your family business. Maybe you would have come back and done something else if we weren't, you know, if the the etiquette thing wasn't our thing. Um, But you you come back and you participate in your community. And I think that's something that um, a lot of us feel encouraged to do, but we don't always actually take the reins of doing it. And it's nice to find ways that you can do it and feel like... You can play that neutral voice if you want to, or there are other positions, you know, if you're the type of person who's more inclined to actually take a stand, that you could you could participate in a way that's more opinion-based. Yeah. It, it is an honor and a privilege. It is. Yeah. And there was a the big agenda item for this particular town mm-hmm. meeting. We had a pretty smooth run of our approving budgets, and these are the plans for the dump truck and the roads, which is the, the bulk of the business at most Vermont town meetings. Totally. We also had a turnover of five seats on a five-seat select board. Oh, wow. So we had to elect five select people. Mm-hmm. And it was there was like a question that, that came up about what is the job of the selectmen before we begin nominations. Mm-hmm. And people were describing, frankly, what an investment it is, how, how much time it takes, how much commitment it takes from the people that yeah. are going to be doing it. And then someone else said, well, talk about the good things. <laughs> and oh, that's nice. one of the, the current select women <laughs> said, you know, one of the reasons I chose to move to Vermont was this tradition of town meeting and how active local government is. And when my husband and I were thinking about Anywhere we might go in the country, one of the things that really brought us here to Vermont was this opportunity to engage with our neighbors and be part of communities that that function with this as part of the way they work. To participate and be encouraged to participate. I mean, so many people don't realize that they actually get to participate in their local government. Speaking of participation, yes, maybe we should participate in this show and get to some questions. I think our audience would probably like that. Let's get to it. 
Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, please email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Program that number into your phones, ladies and gentlemen. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Please just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette when you are on social media so that we know that you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. This question is about pushing knives. This is a great debate. Mm -hmm. Lizzie and Dan, we love your show and listen every single weekend on VPR. I'm the director of a preschool program and recently had a discussion with one of our teachers about teaching proper silverware etiquette to the children. We often eat rice or quinoa for lunch, and the children struggle to get all of it on their fork or spoon. We have started teaching them to use their knife to keep the food on their spoon or fork. Is this a skill that is acceptable later on in life? Is it okay to use your knife to guide your food onto your fork or spoon? If not, is there an alternate strategy that you'd suggest we use to teach these three, four, and five-year-old children to eat properly? Thanks so much. We really appreciate your time and consideration. Sincerely, Sarah. Ah, the great debate Dan wrote in our show notes. A great debate indeed. (laughs) I'm so casual with my dining. I don't even think of the knife as a pusher as a bad thing at all. I think of it as totally normal. When I was a child, my mom actually had a special pusher. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And it's... um, it's it's a funny little shape. Picture almost a shovel that rather than having that scoop on the end, someone bent the scoop the other way. And you it's just a flat edge 
with a little handle on the end and a little kid can hold on to it and literally push the food towards the fork. Um, obviously, we didn't keep them around into adulthood, but I often use my knife to get something onto my fork. I don't typically find myself eating with a spoon and a knife at the same time. So spoon, the scoop really works for me. I think it's interesting to think about giving these kids spoons for things like rice and quinoa. They're so little, three, four, five-year-olds. I'm thinking that's super appropriate. As they get older, I might try to get the spoon away from the type of meal that you wouldn't usually eat a spoon with in American classic dining. Mm-hmm. But I, I would move on to using that that knife. A three-year-old, I think using a knife as a pusher is going to be pretty darn hard. What do you think? I think you've given us a good start here. Yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> because really, we're talking about three, four, and five-year-olds. Little, and this is the the point in time where you're first starting to develop the capability to hold these utensils the right. way you're going to be using them for the rest of your life. But for different kids, that's going to happen at slightly different times. And it really is a question of matching ability and mm-hmm. skill. Mm-hmm. And when we teach children's etiquette, we talk about there's the, the process of teaching, there's the process of practicing, there's the process of building the habit mm-hmm. so that it becomes what you do all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think at this age, you can kind of play with that practice and you can look for what kids are able to do. Mm -hmm. And then you try to introduce the appropriate skill to match that ability. And the knife is going to be an open question between the years of three, four and five, whether it's even a useful or functional utensil or tool for the table. When it comes to thinking about how you use them, ultimately, the, the, the most formal standards for dining are all about using your tools effectively. And it, it's not just about imposing some arbitrary set of rules, but yeah, about no, learning how to use these utensils in ways that here, work man. and help you eat. And yeah. tricky foods and, and, and even something like rice can be tricky food when you're just talking about how do I get this to my mouth? How do I get it onto my fork or spoon and get it into my mouth? And yeah. knife as a pusher makes perfect sense. It's... I mean, so too. It really is. It's it's practical. Practicality is the heart of good etiquette. By all means, do it. The the place where I start to wonder is how long you're holding it on. Like, are you using both to like hold to the exactly to bring it to your mouth? Exactly, to to your mouth. <laughs> no. And to me, that starts Just to look weird. <laughs> so I would start to introduce that concept early on that you're good that idea. you use your pusher to build that bite, and then you're trying to build the control and the ability to bring that bite to your mouth. Um, the other thing is to be easy with kids. Like, honestly, these kids are in a in a school setting. I think that it, a lot of it is about making sure they actually get the nutrition and food that they need. Um, and I think that's that's also a part of it at this age is, like, sometimes you really do practice and work on those cutlery skills. And other times it's more about let's just make sure we're getting food into you so that, so that you are not going to have a breakdown at 2.30 in the afternoon, you know? <laughs> Don't chew with your mouth open. Don't talk with your mouth full. Um, keep it neat. Like th- these are the, the the really age appropriate, important manners at these ages. The having fun using your utensils well, I think, is is my next set of goals. Um, yeah, really having the the control over them as you do as you use them, being able to manipulate them in their hands rather than fist grips were 
talking about something that gives you a little bit more dexterity with them, control with them. And we can definitely talk about grips for holding utensils as we continue to investigate dining manners. I, I think that the place that you might be going with these kids, something that might start to come into play as you get to the the five-year-old end of this yeah. spectrum, is that when you're using your fork by itself, you're probably going to be using it in your right hand your or your dominant, dominant hand, yeah, the yeah, hand that yeah. gives you the most control. And that should help you pick things up off your plate. Maybe you can use the yeah. edge of the plate. Maybe you don't need that pusher as much mm-hmm. that when you're using your knife, usually your knife is in the hand, again, that gives you the most control. For many people, their dominant hand is their right hand. And it's more likely that they're going to be using or holding their fork in their left hand when they do that just because the we sort of start with the yeah. knife in the right. For for most people, that's going to be the, the easiest, safest, I was most say, practical thing. A lot of it comes from the danger of the object you're holding. You want your most dangerous utensil in your dominant hand. Now we end up using our spoons, our least dangerous utensils in our dominant hands as well. But I think the idea is the, the main thing that you're trying to manipulate and do, you want that utensil in your dominant hand when you try to do it. Absolutely. Three, four, and five, it's okay. Sarah asked whether or not this is a skill accepted later in life. It absolutely is. And I think, as we said, there's just a lot of latitude in these young years, and you got to kind of pick your battles. Is today the day we're really going to work with that rice and quinoa? Also, not a bad idea to maybe suggest some other grains that these kids could eat or other ways to incorporate those grains into easy-to-eat-at-school food. Corn. (laughs) peas. Well, those are all tough still, too. You're adding more and more. I'm thinking of like, put the rice in a burrito. The kids can use their hands. I can't talk about this and not think about our grandfather, Bill Post, Poppy, who I I oftentimes think about when I'm teaching dining etiquette, who used to say that one of the great joys of eating is building the perfect bite. And I can picture him sort of building a bite, getting a little bit of turkey and and moving a little bit of mashed potato, a little bit of gravy on there with it. Using that knife to build the perfect bite. Um, not only is it acceptable, I think it is part of refined and excellent eating and will be for the rest of their lives, so push away. What to do with a knife and fork is part of eating well. Holidays are days to be glad, and all good manners are ways to make people glad. Our next question is also about kids in school, but it's titled, More Than One Way to Homeschool a Kid. Dear Awesome Etiquette, Lizzie and Dan. Hello. First of all, let me say how much I love your podcast. Your episodes are always so interesting, and I always feel very lighthearted after each episode, knowing that there are other people in the world who still care about how others feel. I do have a question I was hoping you could answer for me. As a younger listener, I'm only 13. My question is about alternative schooling. My mom has chosen a different kind of homeschooling, very different from the kind of schooling that people in my hometown usually use. When members of our conservative homeschool group find out about our schooling method, they are usually shocked, peppering my mom and I with questions about how we learn anything. However, it can be frustrating to constantly get inquiries about our chosen method, and we get tired of answering. Is there a polite way to deny these traditional folks every detail of our education style? Or should we answer secretly begrudgingly? It can be tiring to have to justify ourselves all the time. 
Thanks for reading this long question. This is not a long question. And for always putting on such a great podcast. Yours respectfully, The Homeschooled Girl. Homeschool Girl, thank you so much for saying that you leave the show feeling lighthearted. I feel lighthearted making it, and it is so nice that that is the feeling that that you're getting from the Awesome Etiquette podcast. Well, and here, teens get such a bad rap for being disengaged, for for not caring, for being myopic, for being, like, you know, only in their own world. And here, you know, we have a, a gal who's, you know, saying that this is important to her and it reminds her that it's that, that other people are going to be thinking about how to be nice to people. What is security at a time in your life when a lot is changing for you? A lot is uncomfortable to literally just walk around thinking, OK, phew, there's nice people I'm going to run into. It's a comfort. <laughs> I like that idea of the security and comfort that being nice brings. And I think that that is where I want to begin my answer to the particular question. And my show notes say persistent politeness, that really holding yourself accountable even in the face of the awkward, the difficult, the embarrassing, the – persistently rude Mm -hmm. um, or even something that that maybe in an individual instance isn't bothersome but aggregative collectively over time just starts to feel like it's grinding you down or like like maybe people don't understand exactly – the position that it puts you in or how awkward it makes you feel. And this happens to everyone. You and I don't always love answering every etiquette question that comes our way. Don't always love talking about the medical thing people know you just went through or the this or the that. This really does happen to folks. You get burnt out on talking about things. And while it can feel like a task, it can also be a security, a comfort, even a liberation to know that you're going to proceed from your best self. And you're going to respond with genuine good intent. You're going to respond to the the question to the degree to which you're comfortable and that you're not going to allow that frustration or annoyance (laughs) that you might be feeling to be the thing that colors your reply. And I think keeping and setting that emotional tone is my first piece of advice. And I think based on the way this question is asked that – That's going to be a place that's going to be relatively easy to get back to with just a little bit of thought and a little bit of intentionality around it. I think so. And I, you, uh, homeschooled girl, you asked the question, or should we answer secretly, begrudgingly? No, you shouldn't have to secretly, begrudgingly answer these questions. I want to give you some sample language to use because it, it is really okay for you to put up gentle boundaries around this. And the idea is that you're going to guide other people to a conversation you'd rather have. If someone just makes a rude exclamation, let's say that you're sitting here starting the conversation, someone asks about your homeschool method, and you say, oh boy, how far is this going to go? You let them know a little bit about your homeschool method, and they come back with just a surprised exclamation, right? You talk about that shocked response, and sometimes that can come with just not thoughtful words. You know, they're not exactly rude, but they're not thoughtful. And the person saying them might not realize how insensitive they are. You can say to a rude exclamation, it works for us. 
and change the subject. You know, like, oh, well, it's a system that really works for us. Tell me about how you guys handle, you know, outdoor activity or something else. I mean, if you want to keep the conversation on homeschool, ask a question about their homeschool experience. If you want to change the subject, you could actually just simply say, well, it works for us. We're pretty happy with it. Hey, did you see that game last night? Or did you hear Dan Senning just became the moderator at the town of such and such? (laughs) Being nice and neutral about the fact that your system works for you and it's it's really just kind of like okay that you don't think it works for you or you're shocked by it or the you know the other person's opinion of it is what it is you not reacting to their opinion I think really helps nullify that situation. Well, and sometimes when someone has a question in their mind, yeah. in what I'm hearing in your answer is you're also giving an emotional alignment. It works for us. You're telling them how you feel about it. And yes. in some ways that gives them access to that feeling of, oh, this works for them. This is okay. <laughs> and it's definitely work for you to to bring that perspective to this conversation. But I think it's work that's worthwhile, particularly if you're talking about people that are part of a, a group that you're interacting with. And it sounds like maybe on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. As a follow-up. As a follow-up. If this person, maybe they're not making rude exclamations, but they're just asking a lot of questions and you're in that moment where you just don't want to go there. It's like, oh, new subject, please. You could say something to them like, if you're curious, you could learn more about our method here. Like maybe there's a website or an organization you can point them to where your mom learned these teachings. Or um, maybe if it's something your mom has come up with on her own, that might be something that she puts together a, a little um, – I'm trying to think of like a PDF or a document, you know, a Word doc or something that might explain some of her thoughts so that when people have questions, you guys always have something to refer people back to if you don't feel like answering the questions in the moment. You know what? There's there's a whole lot we could talk about it with it, but let me just send you this one thing. I can grab your email and send you this document and it'll answer a whole lot of questions. If you have any more, we could talk another time. Those kind of ways of directing people to other ways to find this information They're nice. They let someone know. It's kind of a very subtle way of saying, I don't want to go deep into the weeds because it's a big subject matter or it's it's a lot. You might also say something like, oh, I'd be happy to go into detail another time. I'm really excited to see this exhibit, hear this speaker. I mean, whatever you're gathered with these folks to do, remind them that our focus is actually over here right now, not on how I'm homeschooled differently. Do you think of anything else? No, I really liked your sample scripts. And it's nice to have that language to go with that feeling of emotional security that knowing you are going to respond in a polite way gives. I think so, too. Homeschooled girl, we hope that this helps. And thank you so much for being a fan and listening and writing in. Our next question is about an interview. Which interview? I know, right? Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My partner and I are both set to graduate in May and are on the job market. As you can imagine, this means applying for many jobs, sometimes applying to multiple positions at the same company. He recently got an interview offer, yay, Yay! from one of the places where he had applied to many positions. But the offer did not specify which position the interview was for. What is the most polite way to clarify the position in question? We were wrestling with a response that would not sound desperate or unfocused, signaling that the candidate is not a good fit because they are applying to anything. But of course, he wants to be fully prepared for the interview. Thank you in advance for your advice, Catherine. 
Catherine, so thoughtful, like way to really be thinking about how you might be perceived by another person or how your partner might be perceived by another person. Dan, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to take a whack at this one, but you're, you're like our business guy, I know. But my thought is that you can just allude to the fact that you did apply to more than one. You don't have to say, I applied to everything you have. I'm desperate for a job. I mean, that's like TMI. <laughs> Too much emotion to TME. But I think that you absolutely could say something. I'm assuming email form is what we're communicating with at this point. So you might say, dear so-and-so, thank you for the opportunity to interview for a position at ABC Company. I applied to a couple of positions I felt suited for and would like to know for which position I will be interviewing. Thank you for your time and any assistance you are able to provide sincerely and then your name. But I felt like I, if someone was applying to us and, and we did have multiple positions open and I had reached back out to them, I would feel like an idiot for not having told them which position I'm reaching out to them to interview by. And not every person in the interview position is going to be like that. They're seeing lots of people. Maybe their patience is wearing thin, that sort of thing. But like it, I would feel like the idiot. <laughs> like, And I don't mean to say idiot, but I would feel like the one who had, had been like, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Yes, this job. I think our master of sample scripts has done admirably here. <laughs> and I agree with you. Hiring teams, HR teams aren't going to be offended, particularly mm-hmm. big companies where they're looking to fill multiple positions, where there's yeah. lots going on. They're really focused on getting the right people into these jobs. That's the thing they care about the most. And if they are offended, I'm a little worried about them. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yes. And in, and in some ways, you're. I think that, that that concern of not appearing unfocused is – or like you're just willy-nilly applying to everything that you can is – is an important yes. thing to keep in mind and be aware of, not calling out someone else's mistake. As you've pointed out, they right. might be feeling a little sheepish <laughs> or awkward about this. Oops. Probably not, but just to stay on the safe side. And I think that the script that you provided really does that. It's professional. It's short. It's direct. It's it's to the point. It's not overly emotional. And it sets you up to get the information you need. The only other thought I have is you might be able to play detective and not need to go this route, Google search the name of the person on the email, do a little bit of work, see if you can figure out which position it was. I'm assuming that has happened already. But if that doesn't happen, you don't want to walk through that door completely unprepared. So I think a a little note like this makes perfect sense. Okay. Like if you and I were in this situation, I would totally call you up and be like, Dan, can you read this email? Tell me if anywhere I'm missing where what this interview is for. I scan things so quickly. I, you know, working digitally a lot, you're just you're moving through things. You're sending them on. You're not thinking about it as much. I miss stuff. And it's important to have someone else read it to see if just maybe somewhere there's an indication that you're not seeing. Good point. Catherine, please pass on our good lucks. That's luck for me and Lizzie Post (laughs) on the coming interview. And do keep us posted on how it all turns out. This looks all right. Tell me, why are you interested in this job? I need a steady job, Mr. Wiley, with a chance to go places. I see. Our next question is titled, No Reply Card. Hi, I have a wedding enclosure card question, please. We are hosting my daughter's wedding on May 18th. She chose not to purchase enclosure cards or VSP cards and envelopes. We are inviting 320 people, mostly family and close friends, and lots of college kids. Our day of planners said it would be helpful to have some way to respond, so we added it to my daughter's wedding website. Should we do a business card type enclosure with the wedding website URL and ask guests to RSVP to that website? 
I believe I can coordinate the paper, font, etc., or is this not necessary? Not everyone was invited to her showers because some are out of town, but the URL was on the Save the Date card, and the shower invitations had her places listed that she was registered. Everyone saw the URL on the Save the Date card, and those who were invited to showers also received the URL because that's how they found out about the registries. The wedding and reception are at the same location, and most people will be staying with family. It's really all pretty simple. We're just trying to cover our bases. Thank you in advance for your help. Sincerely, Elizabeth, mother of the bride. Elizabeth, congratulations on a coming wedding. Which, by the way, another listener had heard us say congratulations the other day and questioned the the best wishes thing. You really, truly can say congratulations to both um, bride and groom or both brides and both grooms. It's really okay. We used to say best wishes. That convention has evolved and changed over time. Yes. So congratulations. (laughs) Wedding season is coming. And it's fun. I'm looking forward to it. There are a couple yeah, I'm gonna be in the in a season coming. On the same date. Like I have one I'm going out to be a bridesmaids for for the same date. Well, and you tackled a business question, so shall I tackle a wedding question? Oh, well, yes. Let's see. I'm gonna say yes. I think this is okay. Absolutely okay. I think this makes sense. Yes. I think having a, a a little insert that gives information that you wouldn't necessarily want on the invitation itself is not only okay, it's a Good idea. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to wedding etiquette one up you cuz. Get this, ready? It's actually totally appropriate to have it on the invitation. You could. If having a place, if you don't have a reply card, it is okay to put the RSVP and where you want that RSVP to go to. Not as common on a wedding invitation. It's super formal. Usually that reply card is the way folks go, but it just doesn't have to be. Not every wedding uses every piece of stationery imaginable. And a small business card that just says, please RSVP on our wedding website, and then put the full URL. Put the actual page with the extension, not just uh, katieandgreggetmarried.com, but katieandgreggetmarried.com slash RSVP, you know, whatever it is that that particular section of the site needs in order for someone to get directly to it. That's the most important thing. If that RSVP is on the homepage, then you can simply put that homepage as the address. But you want that full URL so that someone could type it in because remember, they can't just click it on a printed piece of paper. I'm guessing that some people may still send a handwritten RSVP, that if there isn't a reply card, in fact, if we're going back to grand traditions, originally that RSVP card wasn't even a part of a really formal invitation. And the expectation was that you would handwrite mm-hmm. your RSVP and not seeing a card. I think that there's a good chance, particularly some of your more traditional guests are going to reply yeah. via the post with their own handwritten note. I think that most of those um, digital natives, the college kids that are invited, are totally going to to reply and know what to do easily. I think there's a chance that some other folks, you might just want to be prepared to reach out to them to offer a different method of RSVP in case they aren't thinking, because we have been out of practice for so long, of that handwritten reply on your own stationary. It's just, it's good to cover all your bases, as you said. And I think that that's a really smart way to go about it. Also remember that if you haven't heard from folks and you're starting to come up on your deadlines for needing RSVPs, perfectly okay to pick up that phone and call. Elizabeth, mother of the bride, good luck with the rest of the planning and have a great time at the wedding. You know, I think writing letters is going to be a lot of fun. 
Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for a great podcast. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and have been listening from the beginning. Thank you for the great work you do. That being said, I have gotten myself into a bit of a pickle and would appreciate some feedback at how I can smooth things out. I have a wonderful group of friends. However, two of my very good friends do not get along due to some shared experiences unrelated to our individual friendships. For events that I host that are larger and inclusive of many people, these two friends set their differences aside and will exist in the same place. A different friend and I co-host a ski weekend every year, and this year we were able to book a four-bedroom cabin. We both agreed that we would invite four additional people, two people per host, to fill the additional two rooms. While both of my feuding friends are great skiers, I knew I did not want to invite both of them because of the intimate and close quarters associated with cabin life. Smart. I have skied more with one of the feuding friends and wanted to have experience skiing with my other friend. So it was settled. This other friend brought his significant other, and that was settled. Before our trip, I let my other friend know what my plans were so he wouldn't feel like I was going behind his back. In our discussion, he was understandably let down, but said he understood and hoped he might be included on future trips. Fast forward, we just got back from a great ski weekend, and I heard through the grapevine that the friend who did not join us has been telling people how offended he was that he wasn't included. I want to talk with him, but I'm not sure how to approach the conversation, considering I thought we had an understanding before I left on the trip. How should I approach him? I'm also feeling pretty down on myself. It takes quite a bit of effort to plan and organize this weekend, and it's normally worth the effort, but this year I feel a bit deflated. I feel like it wasn't worth inviting either of these friends, and now I have added to the divide between them. In the future, should I invite other friends and avoid the whole scenario? That being said, I feel obligated to invite my other friend next year so he feels he is included. Killington is killing my social life. This is so tough. I want to just say, Killington, you have done such a great job of trying to make this go smoothly and trying to really be an adult about it. Um, you hear us say on the show all the time, not everyone can be invited to everything. And the, we can own that as much as we all want. And people still get upset. And people do do things like and this happens to us sometimes where it's like you say something in the moment. The person reacts and is like, oh, OK, well, no, I totally understand. I understand. And then they go away and and it's like it starts to feel bad. It starts to, to fester in their head as like. Well, no, that really isn't cool. Everyone's going to go and have this good time skiing at a mountain I love, and it's going to be fun, and I'm going to know it. And that person I don't get along with gets to experience it. And all of a sudden, you end up with someone who is venting to other people about their frustration with this. And the nice thing is that you get to decide how you want to proceed. You could completely ignore it and just say, you know what? I explained it to you, and you know, friends have to deal with stuff. Dan saying, this is what I would do. You deal with your own feelings, like. And then you you could decide to address it and say, you know, hey, I actually thought we had talked about this. And then I heard from other folks who were really upset. And I, I care about you. I don't want you to be upset. I love skiing with you. This shook out this way for the reasons that it did. You can either offer them or not and say, and I, I really had, had hoped it would all be okay and that we would just go on a different trip a different time. And explain at least that your intention had not been to create this for this person, but not take on too much of this person, frankly, being very sensitive to something that you, and I hate saying that, I hate calling people out for being sensitive. I believe we should validate feelings. But I think that when you've, you've had that moment, if something was really wrong and you still really felt offended, I might say, rather than go vent to people who are going to bring it back to, to the person organizing the trip, vent to people who won't. 
Like, you know, go vent to other people about it. Like, I don't know. What are you thinking? What are you silent Sam over there? What, what are you or, or come talk to me about it. Yeah, well, well, that's obvious. Sorry. Yes, totally obvious. You are right, Dan. Come talk to me about it. Because like you, my initial reaction is that at some point, the cycle of grievance has to stop. Mm-hmm. And it's so often the case that the easiest place for that to stop is with you, whoever you happen <laughs> to be, that if you just say, okay, that doesn't feel good. I wish they weren't out there having this discussion with other people, but we had a good weekend and I'm going to do my best to not let it interfere with my memory of this trip, yeah. the experience that I had. And unfortunately, oftentimes I think that's the easiest solution. And I, I like that path of least resistance. Um but I also – I liked the way I heard you talk about if you did want to talk to someone about it, say, yeah. listen, I heard this. I, I started to hear Just healing and reparative language in the way sympathy. you brought that up. Like, and Friends don't want their friends to feel badly, like, you know? And if it's the fight or flight response, I'm the flighter every time. <laughs> like when things get au- awkward or difficult, I'm withdrawing and pulling back. <laughs> and I was saying to myself, no, like I, I liked the way you were choosing to engage with that. So I really do. I want to affirm your idea that I think that depending on your the closeness of the friendship, how you're feeling about it, the degree to which you can execute that conversation in a way that is healing and reparative is – what I would use to make the choice of whether I did or didn't. But I I also found myself just wanting to affirm that I think it's weird and (laughs) impolite to be complaining that you aren't invited on a ski weekend. I mean, it's a a big deal. It would be an honor. It would be something that you might really enjoy. But I – it is rude behavior to – to circulate and complain about not being invited and, I, and how you address that. In some ways, you might be bringing that up to address it. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know. What... No, but I'm thinking right here is that what it's doing is the way that this uninvited friend is reacting after this conversation is really challenging whether or not Killington wants to ski with this person, invite them on a trip in the future, deal with them in the future. I mean – the the uninvited friend had such a choice to make, and they, they chose one, unfortunately, in my opinion, that aired feelings for sure and gave voice to feelings that were real feelings. But what if instead of venting and, and venting the negative side of it, the person instead said, oh, my gosh, that sounds like the coolest trip ever. I really hope I'm considered for next year. If your end goal is that you want to be on the trip – why are you going to spend your time complaining about a trip you're hoping to get on? Or at this point, has your emotional like attachment to the trip just gone sour and you're like, I don't even care. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. And there's so many yeah. points of etiquette here that the idea that having a feud, having people that just make a point of not getting along. And maybe there's real grievance. Maybe there's a reason these two people yeah, don't get along no to begin idea. with. <laughs> but if it's not something that. There's some some substance, some there there to these little grievances and feuds within social circles. Tiresome. And mm-hmm. are difficult. They're difficult yeah. for everybody. Yeah, they are. They become other people's problems. And I don't want them to become our ski host's problem. No. And either. I want to encourage our host to continue to host, to continue to play that role and to enjoy it mm-hmm. and to make whatever choices make the most sense for you and your co-hosts and to feel good about that and to not feel badly about the people you can't invite because there are limits. And you can't control everybody's yeah. reactions, but – do the best you can, be as inclusive as you can, and Which enjoy the weekend next year. Already is what's happening. I would also say 
Bear in mind, next year's a long way away at this point. I don't know how far in, in, in advance you have to plan the Killington trip. I often am like, oh, my gosh, next year, how is this going to happen? What's going to happen? Da, da, da. And then it's like, by the time next year rolls around, no one can make the trip. Or I'm hanging out with a totally different group of friends at that point. Or, like, someone's broken an ankle and they're, like, out of skiing for the year. All kinds of things happen. That happens with my golf group a lot. The, the injuries creep in and plans get canceled. And I just wouldn't worry about how you feel about next year right now. I'd wait until y'all are ready to plan that trip to assess how you feel. And have the confidence, Killington. It is up to you and your co-host to decide the vibe you want to set, the people you want to include. It's up to you all. You don't have to let this person's emotional reaction to the weekend once it's happened be what drives next year's guest list. Killington, do what feels right to you in terms of whether or not to confront the complaining friend. But know that you really did act, I think, in everyone's best interest. You really thought about folks. You had some pretty awesome etiquette going on here. And I have to jump in one last time. If you like Killington, I think you might really like Sugarbush. Give the Mad River Valley a try. It's a little further north, but it is is absolutely spectacular. G-Peak, G-Peak. Even further north. I know, I know. But I just get excited about Vermont. (laughs) And look, this dispute was settled fairly. And so Jerry and Eddie are still good friends, just as they always were. It's worthwhile to know many ways to settle disputes. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so that we know you want your question on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Our first piece of feedback is about an episode that I was eager to hear because I wasn't a part of it. I just finished listening to episode 182, and I really appreciated two particular moments. First, when Lizzie corrected herself in real time to use trans and gender nonconforming inclusive language when talking about restroom soap etiquette. And second, all the times when Pooja referenced her family and culture, from naming Indian food hosting culture to clearly naming herself as a woman of color and referencing the additional power dynamics involved in an unwelcome hug. I'm a hugger myself, and I always try to ask, are you a hugger? With a smile on my face before offering a stranger a hug. It takes just a second and gives non-huggers an opportunity to opt out without feeling like they're offending someone. And it's an opportunity to opt in. Asking means they can not only say yes, but also feel comfortable giving me a hug without worrying that I'm not a hugger. Love it. In my communities, there's a kind of implied revocable hugging consent after the first ask. I love this. In fact, as I was writing this email, a friend saw me, waved hello, and gave me a quick hug before she ran away. (laughs) Gauging someone's hug friendliness ahead of time means you can hug confidently later. Just writing this down makes the process seem so clunky. It's pretty simple. Just ask before hugging a stranger. Oh, Honor Vaughn, thank you so much for that feedback. I really loved it. I loved the idea of thinking about the positive side of it. If you ask, it gives someone the invitation to know that you are okay with a hug and that they can say, yes, I'm a hugger too. I loved that because it's so, it brought me back to the place where my heart is at, which I do genuinely like to give hugs. But when I'm, again, as I said, when I'm in business mode, I just think a little differently. 
ask permission to yeah. perform the courtesy if there's any chance that it might bother or offend or make yeah. someone else feel strange. And welcome to the wonderful world of talking about <laughs> etiquette where the second you start describing it, it starts to sound clunky and awkward and strange and it's just not. And way to keep it simple, <laughs> way to come you. back to the core point. I really love this piece of feedback. I really did too. I really did too. Okay, so I I totally didn't want this next one to be navel gazing, but um but I really loved the description that our listener Dan came up with because when you binge listen to the show, I forget that people are listening to like stuff that happened three years ago and just what that does for the timeline of where we are in our real life and where our listeners are in Dan's real life. <laughs> and I've been binge watching a few seasons, I, having finally gotten a little free time. I've been yeah. binge watching TV. So the experience of racing through what chronologically took a long time to produce to develop, yeah. is something that I can really identify <laughs> with right now. So Dan begins. Hey there, Lizzie and Dan. Another Dan here. Oh, that autocorrected to fan the first time I wrote it, which is also true. I don't currently have a question, or rather I do, but I'm waiting until I'm caught up to make sure you haven't already addressed it on the podcast. That's right, I'm a new listener. I discovered your podcast after listening to Lizzie's feature on the Distilled Man podcast and immediately started binging your show. After a week and a half, I hit the 100th episode just before bed last night, and I just started 104 as I began writing this message. That means I'm only a year and a half behind you now. So much has happened in that past year and a half. This has been a really great experience getting to know the two of you and Hans. And I'm looking forward to learning more about the two of you and your journeys. I honestly don't know what I'm going to do when I have to start following you in real time. For you, it's been years since Dan's proposal and wedding and at least a year since the birth of the daughter that I just learned of last night. But for me, it's all happened in less than two weeks. All that aside, I really just want to thank you for doing this. I know it's a passion project for the two of you as well as a business venture for the Institute. And although I was raised in a household and culture that gave me many of the tools that you provide, you're giving me an updated and alternate perspective on the things I was raised with. But also through outreach to other media like The Distilled Man, you're getting this message out to people who maybe didn't have the advantage of being raised in a way that prepared them for being a considerate participant in business, social, scholastic, and family situations. So I really just want to commend the two of you for having the vision to branch out into this new medium and actually actively reach out to and engage a different segment of the population who might not be going out of their way to buy a book on etiquette or search online for some of these questions and lessons. You are making this world a kinder and more considerate place, one listener at a time, and you deserve recognition for that work. It really has been a pleasure listening to this project grow into what it has become, and I can't wait to catch up, if only so I can submit my own question when I've determined whether or not you've addressed it or yet. Warmest regards, Dan. Dan, thank you for listening. And I'm looking forward to hearing that question when it arrives, because there is definitely a lot of uncovered territory. I I am dying to hear it. We there are so many questions that haven't been asked. There's a lot of perennial favorites that we come back to. I I actually get a real kick of it when we redo a question and answer it differently and the audience is like, "Wait a minute, guys. In episode 54 you said this about this." It's fun. <laughs> 
Also, thank you for the support. Yeah. I sometimes think back to what was going on in my life when I first sat down at the microphone with Lizzie Post to do a very early version of this podcast and talk about having just proposed to Pooja. And it really has been a remarkable journey for us, and we hope to continue it for many years to come. Our final piece of feedback was submitted anonymously. One of the possibilities that was not considered on the show, 182, is that lemon-scented soap is not pleasant to all coworkers. I know the people who bring in fancy soaps and lotions mean it to be a nice gesture, but some fragrances trigger migraines. I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought someone might be putting the soap away in hopes that people won't use it because it starts to smell up the bathroom. There's definitely a professional courtesy today around keeping perfumes and colognes and personal hygiene products that are strongly scented to a minimum. And this used to be a a common part of good professional etiquette that you wore a nice scent or a nice fragrance. And that really changed because of shared workspaces and people who were sensitive to these smells and keeping an eye on those soaps and the scents that come with them is a really good idea as well. Thank you so much for sending us your thoughts and updates and please, please, please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is about wine. This segment comes from our Great Get-Togethers book on entertaining that my sister and I co-wrote. And it's a section on page 133 called Tips on Serving and Enjoying Wine. Which I find really helpful because it's about that notch-up experience where you're maybe pairing wines with courses, where you're really thinking about maybe a dinner that's presented in a slightly more formal fashion than I'm used to hosting on a regular basis. I like the idea of kind of going to the nines with it. So to go to those nines, at dinner, you'll want to set a glass for each wine to be served. If you're having several wines, serve the whites before the reds and the dry before the sweet. You'll want to fill the wine glasses to the widest point of the bowl, and this will let the wine breathe. At dinner, this may sound like a lot, but please trust us. It's usually better to have a little bit more than not enough. But at dinner, you want to plan on one bottle of wine per person. You definitely want to adjust according to your guests and what you know of their their likes, dislikes, and habits. Those extra bottles won't go bad in your wine cabinet. Probably not, yeah. When you pour red wine into a decanter, for those of you that don't know, that's a it's kind of a, a vessel uh, usually made of glass, has a large, wide bowl on the bottom and then a narrow, narrow neck to pour out of. And having that big, wide bowl does is it exposes a large surface area of the wine to the air, which lets it breathe, brings out those flavors. This is called decanting the wine. It's also just called letting the wine breathe. But you'll definitely want to do this with your red wine. Finish the wine within a day or two of opening. Otherwise, you'll want to use the leftovers for cooking. Um, The same oxidation that develops the wine's flavor is actually going to cause it to deteriorate over time. So don't decant like early in the morning thinking you're like getting getting ahead of yourself as you prep for your party. You really want this to be like about a half hour before you're ready to serve the wine. Prior to serving your wine the day of your party, you're going to want to store your wine in a cool, dark place and preferably on its side, not standing up. When it comes to white wines and champagnes, they should be served chilled at about 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Please take note that it can take more than two hours to chill a bottle of wine in the fridge. You want to use the lower shelves because they are colder. I love that tip, but plan ahead. 
In a pinch, you could place the wine or champagne in a bucket and add half ice and half water. This actually is better than just ice because it surrounds the entire bottle with that cold water to chill it. It'll be chilled in about 20 to 30 minutes. The freezer is not the place to chill your wine. Uh, There's a really good chance that you'll over chill it and damage the flavor, not to mention you can forget that it's in there and boom, it'll explode. Uh, When it comes to red with red and white with white, this is often a a pairing that we've heard in the past. Um, Not so long ago, it really was the tradition to only serve red wines with red meat dishes and white wines with chicken and seafood. They do a really good job of complementing each other in that way. But today, there's a lot more interest in creative wine and food pairings. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to go with what your palate is telling you tastes good. Don't be afraid to ask a friend for suggestions. And if you hear something that doesn't quite sound usual to you, just don't be scared of it. Give it a shot. See if it works. Finally, how to hold a wine glass. You want to pick up a wine glass by the stem, not the bowl. Cupping the bowl warms the wine and changes its flavor, especially with whites and champagnes. Dan, this is one that surprised the heck out of me when we were writing this book, is that you don't hold a a red wine glass necessarily by the bowl, that you don't hold a wine glass by the bowl. And I was sitting here, like, I remember questioning that when, when we were working on the book, and I saw that and said, hang on a sec, is that right? And, of course, in the situation we've just described here, the wine's already been decanted and brought out probably at the right temperature for whatever type of wine it is. So hold it by the stem. A red, maybe room temperature (laughs) a little higher. So hold it by the stem. You're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You don't want to put on airs or try to use behaviors that you think are associated with wine but you're not sure about. Ultimately, it's about enjoying the experience. It's about enjoying your time with others. Knowing a few of the basics is going to help you do that, help you host well, help you be a good guest. If you want to know more, there is a phenomenal book. Yes, it's called The New Wine Rules by John Bonet, and it's great. It's a really great, great guide. It breaks down a lot of the ideas we've had about wine and how you're supposed to experience wine and gives you sort of a new pathway forward with them. It's a fabulous book. Don't forget that it is by their manners that polite people the world around show their consideration for one another. A dinner party is just one way of enjoying company of your friends. A good meal, good company, real enjoyment, that's what a dinner party is for. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world. And that can come in so many forms. Today, we hear from Tessa. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I have an etiquette salute from my dear friend, Alyssa. I started a hand-lettering company a few months ago, and she was the first one on the list to support me. She was pregnant at the time, so she asked me if I'd write a sign for her daughter to put in her room. After her baby was born, I sent her a package with a few hand-lettered pieces of art to put on her wall. She sent me the sweetest text, telling me how much she loved them and wrote me a thank-you note in the mail. She is a great friend, even from thousands of miles away. Thank you, Tessa. I love how etiquette can make people who are even far away feel very close to us. In fact, it's one of my favorite things about some of these little niceties that they really do keep relationships alive and fresh. You said it. 
Thank you for listening today. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. You can help us out. Become a sustaining member by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com or subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris.